Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Isabel Wilkerson. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Thank you so much, Alicia. That was beautiful. So good evening. Um, Welcome back to those of you who are returning. My name is Rick Chess, and I'd like to call on my partners in organizing this festival, Evan Gurney and Fred Bonson, who I don't know where Fred is, is right there. Good, awesome. So I'm the director of the Center for Jewish Studies at UNC Asheville, and I'm a, a member of the English department. And together with my dear friends and colleagues and co-conspirators, we have organized um, what has turned out to be a really extraordinary two-day festival called Faith in Literature, a festival of contemporary writers of the spirit. Evan uh, Evan is a colleague of mine at UNCA. Um, uh, I was lucky enough to uh, participate in the process of recruiting and hiring Evan, and I've been really so honored to get to work from him and learn from him since he's arrived. And Fred is the amazing author of Soil and Sacrament, um, as well as another book and many other pieces of writing. Fred is the director of the Food, Health, and Ecological Well-Being Program at the Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Did I get it right? I got it right. Good. And so we partnered together, UNC Asheville and Wake Forest University School of Divinity, to really bring this fantastic event to you. So thank you to both of our partners. I'd like to welcome now Chancellor Mary Grant to offer us a welcome, and she'll immediately be followed uh, by Fred with a few words of welcome from Wake Forest. Thank you, Rick, and welcome everyone to UNC Asheville for this wonderful evening of conversation and enrichment. I'm delighted to be able to open up our space here to do these things, and I'm even more so delighted to have such a great colleague like Rick Chess. How about a round of applause for Rick? You know, one of the wonderful things that I get to do in my role of, of being chancellor of this university is work with tremendous faculty and staff on this campus. And so when I came to UNC Asheville about a year after being here, we did my official swearing in. It takes a while. They want to make sure it's going to work. And so I asked Rick to say a few words on my behalf. And he, you know, one of the things that was common was to give a benediction or something like that. And he wrote an absolutely lovely piece that was entitled, Not a Benediction. And, and it was just beautiful because it worked off of the words of the motto of our school, which is, you know, part of it synthesizing 
quite a bit is, you know, we look towards the mountain. And he just wrote this absolutely exquisite piece, which I think describes what we do every day here at a liberal arts university. We help our students to think deeply while looking up to the mountains at the same time. It's a very special place. And to have all of you here over the last few days has been a treat. It's been a delight. It's been an honor and a privilege. This is when we do our very best work in public higher education and in the liberal arts, when we bring people together to think, to engage, to take that pause, to reflect. And so it is indeed very special that we do this as a community and we open this up to our neighbors, to our friends, to our community members, and do it in partnership with our good friends at WCQS. So it is just a great privilege to have all of you here and to spend this evening with wonderful authors. We're gonna do five flash readings. I'm very excited to see what that is about. When I walked in here this evening, I will admit I had a little bit of a panic because Rick said, Mary, I just changed the program up a little bit. We're going to begin with music. That's when I panicked. So Alicia, I'm so glad it was you and not me um, because it turned, it turned out beautiful. Beautifully. Um, but to be in this room this evening with such talented writers, authors, thinkers, um, I am just, I can't wait to hear and be enriched and be nourished by that. And to be in this room with both Krista Tippett and Isabella Wilkerson, two national humanity, humanity medalists, I think that is just really amazing. And, you know, I will have to do a little fan, uh, fan gushing here, Krista, but I begin every Sunday with you. And because we are in this listening area with WCQS, every, mor every Sunday morning at 7 a.m., I start my day with a cup of coffee and listening to Krista Tippett. And I think it's because, in your own words, you have talked about the power of radio, of having these intimate conversations in a way that makes it accessible. So thank you for doing that and for enriching all of our lives and for being here. And Isabel, it is just such a thrill and an honor to have you with us this evening. So thank you for being here at UNC Asheville. Thank you for this special weekend. A tremendous thank you to our partners at Wake Forest University and to Rick Chess and Evan Gurney. It is a pleasure and an honor, and I welcome you to UNC Asheville. Good evening. Uh, so I'm, I'm up here officially to welcome you on behalf of the School of Divinity at Wake Forest University, but I'm kind of a, uh, a not very institutional guy, and so by way of introduction and welcome, I want to read one of uh, Marilyn Robinson's excuse me, Marilyn Nelson's poems uh, from last night. If you weren't here last night, you missed a magical evening with Marilyn Nelson, and I'm sure we're in for another magical evening tonight. Uh, but I want to read a short clip it for one of her poems. Abba Jacob said, we talked earlier about celebrating life in a disenchanted world, about how to enchant the world again. Part of re-enchantment comes from being attentive to our senses, living in this momentary world attuned to its everyday texture, how it looks, smells, sounds, tastes, and feels. But we must be attentive to and at the same time detached from sensory experience. Things have value in themselves, but they are signs of something else. Words and things are always leading us on, always talking about something beyond themselves. Things, things and words are not a cul-de-sac. They speak the language of signs, the language of the absolute. And so as I think about what we're doing here tonight, I think that's a great little precis uh, of caring for language, of re-enchanting the world, and of remembering that our words can reach toward and sometimes briefly grasp uh, the absolute. 
And I think to do that, we need institutions that serve those ends. And so I'm really grateful to our institutions that allow us to do this. Uh, to UNCA, our hosts, and to my institution, Wake Forest University School of Divinity, uh, for allowing us to, to sort of stretch the boundaries of what these kinds of institutions normally do uh, and to gather together like we're doing tonight. So thank you and welcome. Thank you, Mary, and thank you, Fred. So tonight, we're going to hear six of our writers who will read from brief passages or short poems of their own. And so I'm going to um, invite us all to open our ears and hearts to receive the work. If you're interested in their full bios, you can find them in your programs. And so please, writers, come and join me up here at the podium. A reading from Soil and Sacrament. I love making compost, the bright green of freshly mown rye, vetch, and clover, steam arising from the pile on a cold morning, the smell of the forest floor in your hands. There's a secret joy, a kind of charity to be found in this act, transforming a pile of grass and dirt and old leaves into an offering of humic mystery. On those days, I become a priest, dispensing the elements to a microbial congregation. Lord, take these humble gifts, grass, leaves, soil, make them be for us the body and blood of the world, holy vessels of self-emptying glory. All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. After months of heating and cooling, and turning, the pile of well-cooked humus is ready to spread onto the soil. Into that, I plant speckled trout lettuce, curry squash, sugar snap peas, which feed the hungry people of our community. The people's hunger could be slackened, but it would never end. And all the while, the secret life of soil continues, the gift waiting to be found. Like a ceaseless hymn of praise, the cycle goes on with or without you, winter and summer, rain and drought, seed time and harvest, a process of creation beyond your control that has been in motion since the foundation of the world. It's a song of life that sings even when things around and within you no longer seem certain. Choir master, I require of you the fat man, the farter, the spastic drooling on her sleeve. Come, chain smokers, bring the deaf boy and his grandfather. Where's the man with the artificial voice box? I need him now. Have so few rappers come? Call them. Get them here. Assemble the children and their cats and dogs. I want the lisper in this section on my right. Call the nurses at the nursing homes to wheel the bedridden in. I need the coffers and the burpers right here beside the shrill old ladies. Run to the door one last time. Call people from the street. 
Any who come are fit to stay. The hour is upon us. The drunks in the back row have already begun their ruckus. The yodelers and the karaoke enthusiasts can hardly contain themselves. This is the Gloria Patri. If you can sing, sing. If you can only croak, croak like you've never croaked before. From a book of carols, Carol of the Infuriated Hour. The stab to the heart that is such music, the light beyond brightness that is such sight. For the sake of this season in the stories, I will cease my wars with God tonight. I will choose with open eye the talking beasts, the white in the snowdrift Christmas rose, the legends of wandering a bitter way, high hill and desert, for what? God knows. Someone turned the rose tree to a cross, and the armies thunder into penitential song. Such is the ancient sorrow, they who stole the stories have the stories wrong. What saved the old ones in the tangled land amid assorted enemies is what saves still. See the white stag in the tangled wood, the cross and the rose on the same snow hill. We are saved in our infuriated hour by cunning softened, by omnipotence beguiled, by the newborn tempest crooked upon our arm, motherly murmuring to him, child, my child. Um, I tutored 12-year-olds for their bar and bat mitzvahs, and this is about a 12-year-old girl who had been, based on her birthday, assigned the portion about the woman accused of adultery who has to drink this disgusting potion. How to sail. Scrape the curse off the parchment. Stir the broken letters into a jar of water. Make a woman drink it. Thus said Elohim. But why? Thus said Molly, 12 years old. <laughs> Now I was the teacher. We sat there, two black flames in a room of white fire. We were sailing on a wind that passed through the open window of a room next to the marketplace 2,000 years ago. I cannot describe God in the same way that I cannot describe a picture that I am holding millimeters from my eyes. The picture is made strange and unknowable, not because it is distant, but because it is so close. Or I cannot describe God in the same way that I can't describe the collections at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. There is too much there for me to describe, to come out of the museum and tell you about the one blue bowl I looked at for an hour does not tell you about the museum. That is the hush of negation. The interrupting reminder that you can't hazard a description of the museum because there is always so much more to be seen. God is nearer and more than I can say. Of course, God's refusal to be described is in some essential ways unlike the limits of description posed by the museum gallery or the picture I'm looking at too hard. There is excess in the museum as there is excess in each one of us 
could I ever exhaustively describe you or myself? God resists description because God is the one who is what God has and the one in whom and from whom all beings have what they are, which is not true of the museum. In spite of everything, wrote Rowan Williams, we go on saying God. This dance between saying and unsaying is the way we know it is God about whom we long to speak. Thank you so much, Fred, Luke, David, Alicia, and Lauren. In Amy Gottlieb's moving novel, The Beautiful Possible, Congregational Rabbi Saul Karam explains to his wife, Rosalie, one of the reasons he reveres Leonard Bernstein. He explains to Rosalie how a single large gesture the sweep of Bernstein's hands at the perfect moment, his own arms, that's Saul's arms, raised to offer a blessing at the end of services, can blaze a hole through the sky and change the direction of a life. With their work, Isabel Wilkerson and Krista Tippett have blazed many holes and change the directions of many lives or change the way many of us understand the lives of others with whom we share this American, this human experience. Pulitzer Prize winner Isabel Wilkerson is the author of The Warmth of Other Suns, the New York Times bestseller and winner of the 2010 National Book Critics Circle Award for nonfiction. Warmth brings to life one of the epic stories of the 20th century through three unforgettable protagonists who made the decision of their lives during what came to be known as the Great Migration. The book made news around the world when President Obama chose Warmth for summer reading on Martha's Vineyard in 2011. In 2012, the New York Times Magazine named Warmth to its list of all-time best books of nonfiction. And in early 2013, the New York Times Book Review declared that Warmth was published only two years ago, but it shows every indication of becoming a classic. Wilkerson won the Pulitzer Prize for her work as Chicago bureau chief of the New York Times in 1994, making her the first black woman in the history of American journalism to win a Pulitzer Prize and the first African-American to win for individual reporting. The judges of the Linton History Prize conferred by Harvard and Columbia universities, which Wilkerson won for warmth, described the work like this. Wilkerson has created a brilliant and innovative paradox, the intimate epic. At its smallest scale, this towering work rests on a trio of unforgettable biographies, lives as humble as they were heroic. In different decades and for different reasons, they headed north and west along with millions of fellow travelers. 
in powerful lyrical prose that combines the historian's rigor with the novelist's empathy, and I'd have to add with the poet's lyricism. Wilkerson's book changes our understanding of the Great Migration and indeed of the modern United States. And just a few weeks ago, Isabel Wilkerson was honored once again when she received the 2015 National Humanities Medal awarded by President Obama. Krista Tippett was also awarded to uh, honored to receive the National Humanities Medal awarded by President Obama in 2013. Much beloved for her inquisitive, illuminating interviews with theologians, philosophers, physicists, writers, dancers, activists, environmentalists, spiritual leaders, and a wide variety of serious, gifted men and women whose work has a powerful impact on the world, Krista Tippett is the author of three books, Speaking of Faith, Einstein's God, and her most recently published book, Becoming Wise, an Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living. Following this evening's conversation with Krista Tippett and Isabel Wilkerson, books will be available thanks to Malaprop's Bookstore and Cafe for purchase and signing. The book table is in Carmichael Hall, right across the way from Humanities Lecture Hall. And I should also note that almost all of the writers from the festival are still here, and they all will also be happy to sign books. And I'm sure they'd be very happy to sell a few books as well. Um, as I said last night, this evening's conversation is being recorded for possible broadcast as a future episode of Krista Tippett's award-winning program, On Being, which we can listen to at 7 a.m. on Sunday morning if we have the strength to get up. And if we don't have the strength to get up, we can listen to it any time of the day, day or night, as a podcast on their incredible website. Um, but we can listen to it here locally, on air, on WCQA. Please join me now in giving the warmest welcome to the extraordinary Isabel Wilkerson and Krista Tippett. Once again, an overwhelming introduction and a beautiful beginning, beautiful with those readings. Um, as important as the fact that we both won the National Humanities Medal, we learned today that we both loved Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> and I think possibly the Nobel Committee should consider a posthumous award for Gene Roddenberry since they're expanding the definition of literature. <laughs> um, oh, I've just lost my pen. <laughs> I'm so happy to be back here tonight, and this is an extraordinary event. Um, and I kind of got lost in this book once again this afternoon. The Warmth of Other Suns, um, which Isabel Wilkerson published in 2010. This is, it's an epic act of reporting and writing, thank you so much, <laughs> over 15 years yielding a majestic work of narrative nonfiction. It's the story of the migration of nearly six million people from the south of the United States to the north, one of the biggest underreported stories of the 20th century, told through the lens of three lives. 
But this is history that touched on every American in some way, and that is also re- and that is also revealed in these pages. But as large as this exodus was, and that biblical word is apt, there was no grapes of wrath written to commemorate it. And that's really what, what Isabel Wilkerson has done for all of us now in the 21st century. It is a book about the human spirit. It is a book about truths we forgot or didn't pass on, but that speak to and shine a light on the human and social crises that are newly visible at the heart of our life together in this country. It is also a book about the eternal human drama of migration that continues in our time here and around the world. And you yourself are a child of this great migration. Um, And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. And also, uh, you know, I always ask this question about the religious or spiritual background of someone's childhood. Mm -hmm. And I think that as I've... um, as my cumulative conversation has progressed, I have a much more expansive imagination about what that is, the spiritual background of one's childhood. Um, so I just wonder um, if the fact that you're a child of this migration flowed into what you now might imagine as the spiritual background of your childhood. I do think that they're intertwined. I mean, I'm, I'm the daughter of two people who uprooted themselves from the old country of the South, from different states, and relocated uh, and remade themselves in the new world, which was Washington, D.C. for them. And uh, in doing so, that meant that uh, they were kind of leaving behind parts of themselves Mm -hmm. in order to take on this new persona. I think that's what migrants often do, is they take on the identity of the new place that they hope will work out for them. No guarantees, a leap of faith into the unknown. Um, When it comes to uh, the family background, it so happens that my mother's father was a Baptist minister. uh And my uh, father was uh, in Georgia. And my father's, uh, my father grew up in Virginia, also in a Baptist church. But his church was so formal and... um, controlled and traditional, that uh, even the Episcopalians thought they should loosen up a little bit. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and while they didn't, they didn't uh, carry on all of those formal rituals um, when they got to the north, they did pass on the traditions, you know, the traditions of, of uh, you know, going forth and forging ahead no matter what, of dignity and grace and family, mm-hmm. um, of striving always, and also overcoming, you know, always overcoming setbacks and rising up um, in, in spite of all that. It also happens that my father was a pilot. He was at Tuskegee. Really? And he actually was, he actually taught Tuskegee uh-huh. Airmen. He was an uh-huh. airman, uh-huh. and he also taught, uh-huh. uh, did flight training for them. And I think there's something about being the daughter of a pilot that makes you feel that, you know, metaphorically, you could fly too. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So um, 
let's just establish just quickly like the facts, the contours mm-hmm. of this of this story. Um, at the start of the 20th century, 90% of black Americans were living in the South. By the end of the Great Migration, which is from 1915 to 1970, um, 47% were living outside the South. Is, it, is this nearly 6 million people? How is that hard? It's probably hard to count, isn't it? It is. I mean, the, the general, generally accepted number is about 6 million, yeah. but that's an underestimate because a lot of people would not have been captured in the census to begin with. Right. A lot of people would have come up and then found that it didn't work for them or found that it was too difficult to make the adjustment and then returned. Yeah. And so there are, there are estimates of, you know, as much as eight or nine million, but yeah. six million is what we can affirm. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a sentence from your book, by the time the Great Migration was over, few Americans had not been touched by it. It's hard to imagine what our country would look like if there hadn't been a great migration, I mean, depending upon which aspect of our society you want to think about. Um, certainly in popular culture, meaning music, music was reshaped by the great migration. Motown exists as a result of it. Barry Gordy, his parents were from Georgia. He migrated to Detroit, um, where once he got to be a grown man, he wanted to go into music. and. Uh, he decided that you know he didn't have the wherewithal to go all over the country, and he didn't have to because there they were in Detroit. All of these young people who had come up uh, with their parents had been born in the North, and they grew up hearing the music that had sustained the ancestors, the, the spirituals and the gospel music and the blues music, and they decided they wanted to do something different with it, and right. so he... You know, he they adapted was able it, to they re- innovated yeah. on the tradition. So all of those people, you know, Diana Ross and um, and Smokey Robinson, all of those people are descended of the Great Migration. Mm-hmm. Jazz is a creation of the Great Migration. Miles Davis, Thelonious Monk, uh, John Coltrane, all of them were children of the Great Migration. And basically, uh, that was one of the great gifts to the country and the world that came out of this migration. Right. When it comes to politics, Red states and blue states in part became that because once these people, when they were in the South, they were prevented from being able to vote, prohibited from being able to vote. So when they migrated out of the South and then went North and West, they were, as immigrants are today, brand new voters who had never been on the books anywhere else before. And the Democrats got to them in these places like Chicago. And in the Chicago election of 1940, it was the, the African-American vote, meaning the newly arrived people who had never voted before, who helped make the difference for a really difficult, very, very tight race uh, that uh, Franklin Roosevelt was facing in his third term. Huh. And it came down, it, believe it or not, I mean, Illinois was a swing state. They had the Democratic National Convention there. <laughs> right. That's how tight it was. And yeah. he won by the margin of error of the, the um, number of African-Americans Americans who had arrived in the North during before the last election. Oh, that is amazing. Yeah. Um, so the title of the book is uh, "The Warmth of Other Suns," which which comes from um, some lines of Richard Wright, another character product of this experience, as he was about to leave Mississippi for Chicago in mm-hmm. 1927, and. Um, I'm just going to read it. Uh, He wrote, I was leaving the South to fling myself into the unknown. I was taking a part of the South to transplant in alien soil to see if it could grow differently, if it could drink of new and cool rains 
bend in strange winds, respond to the warmth of other suns, and perhaps, just perhaps, to bloom. And one thing you wrote that I want to ask you about is that your mother, I mean, you, you wrote you so many years writing this, and you, of course you don't, I think a book is like a baby, and you can't actually name it until you can look at it. And so it's not, it was not a predestined that it would be called no. The Warmth of Other Suns, but your mother, who also, again, is part of this story, knew from the first that this had to be the title. Say something about that. Well, the thing is that it was, it was an, an unnamed orphan child for the longest time that yeah. I was working on it. And you know, I worked on it for so long that I think a lot of people in my life wondered if it would ever right. happen. Yeah. <laughs> it was 15 years. It was yeah. a very long time. Um, and interestingly enough, just as an aside, uh, one of the people in the book, um, George Starling, who was a deacon in his church in New York, he said, if you don't finish this book soon, I'm going to be proofreading from heaven. <laughs> yeah. And he was right. That, oh, he was? Yeah. Yeah, he was right. Yeah. Um, so for the longest time, it didn't have a title, and people would be asking me, well, what's it called? And as long as I couldn't give it a name, it's almost as if it didn't exist. And there yeah. were enough people already wondered if it was going to ever happen anyway. And I happened to be uh, going, I mean, I was reading at a certain point a book a day. I mean, there was a tremendous amount of research that had to go into it. And I went back to the actually annotated version, the original book by Richard Wright. He, it's his autobiography. It's called Black Boy currently, but it originally was going to call, be called American Hunger. That was what he had hoped it to, for it to be called. It's an interesting story about what happened. Mm. Um, when he submitted it, he had difficulty getting it accepted to by the Book of the Month Club, which was a big deal at the time. And they said they would accept it as long as he only included the first half, which was about the South and not the second half. And so he had to race to come up with the, an, a new ending because there it was. Mm. I mean, it was mm. sort of chopped in half. And he came up with these, this distillation that can happen when you're under that kind of intense pressure, the combination of time, urgency, mm. creativity, genius all coming together. And so he had this, he had this uh, very hastily put together new ending. But in the current edition that we have, which is everything, uh, the entire book, it's not there. So it was only in the annotated version that this, you know, as for the footnotes for people who were interested, such as I, who was completely, totally interested, <laughs> right. Uh, right. There, there it was. And I saw this passage and I So I this passage that. was in that. And his passage not. was in the annotated version oh my gosh. of the uh, of his autobiography. Right. Yeah. And you shared it with your mother. And I, I did. I mean, she was she was interesting. I mean, she she actually this this entire process of working on this book, uh, of of delving into this you know painful part of our history. Uh, was really difficult for them. I mean, most of the people in that generation did not talk. And I've since talked with, you know, met people from all over the world who are the children or grandchildren of people who suffered. Um, right, it's, the, it's always that first it's just, generation. It's, it's, yeah. it's be, it defies words. Or, it defi and they, yeah. they, they just don't talk. Uh, I think there are a lot of reasons why I think they don't talk. But mm -hmm. in any case, uh, it was difficult to get my mother to talk. She was one of these people who was mm -hmm. not talking. And um, 
I, at a certain point, just gave up and just thought that she wasn't, and I just continued on with what I was doing. She wasn't in the, in the original planning for how I wanted to do this book. On some level, it wasn't necessary because she was never going to be the protagonist. I was always going to write about three people yeah. following three different paths, as you see in the book. But, you know, I wanted to... I wanted and would have enjoyed hearing her side of it, but she was not talking. And so what I started to do was I just began to read what I had to her. And once I began to read what I had to her, something was activated, something was triggered in her. I don't know whether it was just simply memories, I do think that, but I also think there was a kind of almost a rival was, well, wait a minute, I actually know something about this. <laughs> right. And she started to talk. Uh-huh. And uh, so I would share, I began to share more and more of it. And she had this way of recognizing instantly mm. what something should be. Mm. There's something beautiful that you wrote um, about this, naming it. The, you said you wrote, the question of the title set me on a course. I don't know if you wrote this or said this in another interview. But the question of the title set me on a course of trying to understand just what the sun means to us, what it gives us, and what it takes to defy the gravitational pull of your own solar system and take off for another far away. That is absolutely true. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I actually, once I narrowed it down to that, you know, that seminal poetry from Richard Wright, the question was, well, it's interesting looking back on it now, it just seems so inevitable. But at the time, I actually spent months and months and, you know, I'd take time and think, you know, well, should it be just other sons or should it be, should you need the entire phrase? And then yeah. I started to think, uh, what is the sun and what does the sun mean to us? And I really did, you know, it became a powerful image of what does it take to leave not just your planet, but the force of will to leave your entire solar system for another one far away that you can't see, where you don't know what will happen to you. And that that was what animated my sense of connection with them. I began to channel these people I felt such a deep connection to what they went through. Mm-hmm. I even at a certain point began um, going to vintage clothing shops and looking for things from the era. I mean, I just really, <laughs> I just felt, I mean, I was reading the newspapers anyway. I was thinking about what were they wearing? What were they seeing? What were the advertisements they were they were exposed to? You know, what kind of medicines were they thinking about? You know, the various mm-hmm. pomades and things. I just got really caught up in it. Yeah, I think it's necessary for this kind of work. It's almost like method writing as opposed to method acting. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it's clear. Um, I mean, immersion doesn't really do justice no. to what it must have taken to write these these stories that that tell a larger story. And I think even just what you said about the sun, it's it's a cosmic story almost. Um, so maybe maybe before we keep going. Um, uh, maybe you should just briefly, and I think that briefly is going to be hard, just introduce these central characters who you chose. Um, where was it? I, I wrote, you talked somewhere, you know, that you spent 18 months of interviews of more than 1,200 people to find these three protagonists. 
and or just you re- interviewed seniors at quilting clubs in Brooklyn, <laughs> senior centers in Chicago, bus trips to Las Vegas <laughs> with seniors from Los Angeles, <laughs> scouted postal wor- retired postal workers and bus drivers, and AARP meetings on the south side of Chicago, and it goes on and yeah. on and on. Yeah. And then you chose three people. Yeah. So just briefly, because you know, obviously we're not. Everybody hasn't read the book. Um, and we could spend our whole time talking about these three people. And, we, and I think we're mostly going to focus on really the, the larger story that, that they have helped you tell. Um, but I do think we should just hear a little bit about who they were. Um, yeah, I mean, just introduce the three of them. Well, um, if, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to first say that there was a, you might say, a spiritual instinctive decision that had to be made first and that was whether I was going to go to the archives first or whether I was going to go to the people first. And I chose to go to the people first because the archives would always be there, but the people wouldn't. Hmm. Um, hmm. And uh, that was a huge leap of faith because that meant I was going almost completely blindly into just hoping that I would be able to pull together a narrative without really having done an extensive amount of research ahead of time. Mm-hmm. But then they became my tutors. You know, they became my guides through this era and all that they had endured. So what I ended up doing was I ended up doing, it's people, you know, it's 1,200 people that I interviewed, but essentially that was a casting call. I was auditioning people for the role of being a protagonist in my book. Mm -hmm. And I went to the places that you described. And then uh, after hearing so many stories, I mean, there there could be, you know, there are many people who are actually in the book who were, who would have been, the protagonist, but they ma- they didn't make it as in the final three cut. Yeah. So, um, but they do make an appearance. And what's beautiful is I actually will hear from some of their families, even the people who are just listed in the back. They just so appreciate it. Um, so I, I narrowed it down to about 30. Any one of the 30 could have been uh, the three. And then I settled on the three because ultimately I was looking for uh, a combination of people whose experiences in the South and where they went in the North and the journeys that they took, the reasons, the motivations, circumstances would complement one another. So uh, the first to have left, well, actually I should also say that I was looking for people who, one, who would, would have left in succeeding generations, one, sorry, mm-hmm. succeeding decades. So it'd be one per decade. And that was to show rather than to tell you how long this went on. Mm-hmm. So the first to have left was someone who left in the 30s, and that's Ida Mae Brandon Gladney, who was a sharecropper's wife. And the lovely thing about her that caught my attention the very first time I met her was that she confided to me that, yes, she had been a sharecropper's wife, and yes, they had had to pick cotton, but that she was terrible at it. She was just awful. (laughs) And it was such a lovely notion to me because we just assumed that because they were assigned this role in the caste system Mm -hmm. that they were all suited to it, that they, you know, we can't... I don't know whether we people assume that they liked it. I mean, liking it was not... An, an option anyway, but they were not even all good at it. And she was terrible at it, so that got my attention. Um, her family's story, however, was that uh, one of their relatives was beaten to within an inch of his life uh, over a th- uh, an ac- accusation of a theft that he actually didn't commit. And the proof that he had not committed that this theft uh, came the next day when the thing they thought he had taken turned up. It was turkeys, and they turned up the next day. Mm. But he'd nonetheless been beaten to within an inch of his life, and uh, they had to go, the men in the family had to go and retrieve him. The planters, 
the planter and his associates came and uh, basically kidnapped him and then beat him. Mm-hmm. Nothing was going to come of it. You didn't go to the sheriff or, or, or anything. So his, her, her husband uh, decided that they needed to get out. They couldn't leave uh, as easily as it might seem. They had to uh, carefully plan their strategy, not tell anyone. Yeah. Um, they had to keep it quiet. And then and only then could they actually leave. One of the things she, she said was, you didn't tell people you were going until you were gone. So that was yeah. one. Yeah. The second one to leave was, uh, that was from Mississippi to Chicago, I should mm-hmm. say. The second one to leave was uh, George Swanson Starling, who had been a very, very bright man uh, and had a few years of college in Florida is where he was from. But the money had run out for the family. Um, the father uh, did not have anything further to send him. He did not, African Americans were not permitted to go to the state schools. They could only have gone to uh, the African American school wherever they could get in. And uh, anyway, once he was not able to stay in school, he uh, had to return to the work of the people in the place where he was from, which was citrus picking. Um, the work was dangerous. Uh, it was, the, the pay was, uh, was, all but nothing, and he uh, he recognized that they were being cheated horribly for what they were doing, and he set about trying to organize them so that they could get a little bit more for the hard work that they were doing and for the dangers of them. People were mm-hmm. these trees were mm-hmm. forty feet high, and people would fall out of the trees and um, you know break a limb, and nothing was done of it. Um, for his involvement in encouraging the people to stand up for themselves. Uh, the planters and their um, associates plotted uh, to lynch him, and he had to flee for his life, and he went to New York, mm-hmm. where he ultimately became a railroad man and was hurled back into that world of going back and forth and was an eyewitness to the very migration that he had been part of. Mm-hmm. The um, third person was Dr. Robert Joseph Pershing Foster, uh, who, in the time since the book has been out, um, well, he was a character anyway, but a lot of people um, have very strong feelings about him when they read the book. Yeah. Uh, he had been a surgeon in the Army, um, but it turned out that when he returned, he'd been in the Korean War, he, uh, when he returned from the war, um, from his service, it turned out that he could not practice surgery in his own hometown of Monroe, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And so he set out on a course to um, to uh, journey out to California, where he hoped he'd be able to live out the life that he dreamt for himself. Um, he had a family by that time, and he. But he, as often as the case in migrations, the men will sometimes set out on their right. own and sort of scout out uh, the situation. And he did that, um, but it was a very long. It was a very long drive, as anyone would know. Um, but he ran into. Heartbreaking, um, uh, heart, heartbreaking rejection on the road out to California that made him question whether he was doing the right thing and question his place in the country overall. Like he couldn't stay places over and over again. He would he was turned away from hotels and he was turned away from hotels time and time again. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was outside. And what decade of the, was this? This was the 1950s. This was 1953. Yeah. And he, like many, I mean, like, well, there's a, there is a, uh, 
a, a, an artifact that's getting a lot of attention now called the Green Book, which is referred to in the book. And that was, in some ways, a guidebook. It was sort of a AAA guidebook, map mm -hmm. quest, all of this combined into one. And uh, it was something that was necessary for African Americans as they were making their way th through the country, traveling without being able to you know, find places to sleep, no guarantee of being able to get gas for your car, no guarantees of where or if you'd be able to eat. And so these were all of the, the, mm. the hazards that they faced. And this, this green book was uh, created in 1936 by this postal worker in New York, Victor Green, who beautifully, as he printed his first copy, said that he looked forward to the day when it wouldn't be necessary. So, you know, you have... Um I think just um, the notion of refugees and migrants, people, I mean, you've said that the, the, the language of political asylum is absolutely apt here for, um, for what people were undertaking. Um, and it's just not, as much as we know a lot of these stories and a lot of the things that were wrong, um, that feels like a new recognition. It does. I think that because it happened within the borders of our own country, we don't think about it yeah. as, first of all, it was a kind of immigration, although these were this is the only group of Americans who had to act like immigrants in order to be recognized as citizens. Um, they were forced to, to seek political asylum within the borders of their own country. Um, because they're, they're, they were living in a caste system in the South that did not recognize their citizenship. And um, some of them travel farther than, than current day uh, immigrants might, but that was really not the point. The point was that the country actually was, was kind of two countries in one, and that's what they had to do. I often say that, the, that this book that the you know the book is viewed as being a book about the great migration and over time as it's you know as I've talked about it over these years I've come to realize that it's not about migration the great migration is not about migration and really probably no migration is about migration right. it's about freedom and how far people are willing to go to achieve it this mm -hmm. is the means that they feel they must take in order to find freedom wherever they can find it mm -hmm. and and for that reason, I think that the focus on migration, where, where, whether it's we're speaking about the great migration of this era that I'm speaking of or our current day, I think that we uh, often misjudge or do not understand what's happening because we're not recognizing really what they're wanting, their motivations, and also seeing ourselves in them. Yeah, and, you know, again, uh, I mean, you've pointed out things like, I mean, driving past a white person or that there were black Bibles and white Bibles and that it was illegal to play checkers with a white person. And, and then on the other end of the spectrum, the 1903 gubernatorial candidate in Mississippi who declared, if it is necessary, every Negro in the, Negro in the state will be lynched. So this is, these are the conditions under which people were living. But in the book, you know, I think there's something, this book is such a, it, it embodies this paradox um, that people that not, that writers know, that storytellers know, that radio actually knows, that the more particular uh, you can get with your particular your story, the more universally it can be received 
in the that 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 others can join their life and their imagination with what you have to share. And so some of the moments there were these moments for me in the book um, that were just so human, right? That were so relatable that made all of these other horrors come home, right? And so one of them for me was um uh, I, all these names, not fa- <laughs> Robert Joseph Pershing Foster, because you, you also changed the he first name he name. was using, right? Yeah, so, but Doctor Foster, he who became it, not me. went on, oh, he, okay, <laughs> who went on to become this brilliant doctor. Yeah. So when he's uh, a child, a fire breaks out in the basement of his school, and the city just said that they weren't going to replace the desks and the teaching supplies. And this is a kid with a beautiful mind who wants to learn. And at the time, a local woman says, well, you know, we shouldn't do that because if those Negroes become doctors and merchants or buy their own farms, what shall we do for servants? That, that, that this intelligent boy is growing up with that. And another, just another moment with George Swanson Sterling was uh, you asked him uh, what he hoped for in leaving. And he said, I was hoping... I would be able to live as a man and express myself in a manly way, getting chills, without the fear of getting lynched at night. Mm. And even the way it comes across, I mean, he he didn't say it. It doesn't sound like he said it with a lot of bitterness or drama. It was just matter of fact. Not not even that much emotion because it Uh was these were the facts of their lives. Uh And um, at that time when they were growing up, and this time period was a very long time. It was the end of Reconstruction until the 1970s. I mean, it encompassed someone who, you know, was born at the, uh, you know, in the 1880s and passed away in the 60s would have known nothing other than this. And so these were the facts of their lives. And he didn't, he he was not emotional. He wasn't bitter. It was just a matter-of-fact statement of what it was that he was up against and why he felt he had no choice but to go. Mm -hmm. He... I ran into a lot of people who said they didn't think they would have they would have lived if they had stayed. There was actually a tremendous amount of fear that a lot of parents in the South had for their children if they were, you know, if they were extroverted and um, opinionated. If you know, the if children were, were, yeah, if they were spirited and mm-hmm. expressive, you know, there was a need to rein that in. I mean, in other words, childhood itself had to be controlled and repressed mm-hmm. because it could mean their very lives. And so he grew up under that. And his father said, well, if this is, if you're going to continue doing this work, the things you're doing, it's best that you go. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that happened in this great migration is that um, it spread people all over this country. I mean, people, these places that they went, there had not been a significant African-American population. Right. So you look at, right. you know, the, the African-American population of all of the, the cities in the North, Midwest, and West are a result of this. We're seeing the manifestation of that. Mm-hmm. You know, Seattle or, or Oakland or yeah. Los Angeles. Detroit wasn't yeah, this Detroit. Is, no, it wasn't. None yeah. of these places were what they were at the time. And a lot of them are, are filled by people who felt they had no choice and that they would not have lived if they hadn't gotten out. Mm-hmm. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the writer... <clears throat> let me start again. <clears throat> Sorry, never hear me start again, do you? Um, I'm Krista Tippett. Right, no, no laughing. 
I'm Krista Tippett. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with the writer Elizabeth Wilkerson at the Faith and Literature Festival at University in, at the Faith and Literature Festival at the University of North Carolina, Asheville. Elizabeth. What did I say? Elizabeth. Isabel. You said Elizabeth. Oh, okay. Boy, you know this. This last two days, it's really not usually this bad. <laughs> Why did I say Elizabeth? All right. Um, it's a derivative, so it's actually okay. Isabel. I love the name Isabel. I was <laughs> thought you. if I had a third child, I would name her Isabel. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with the writer Isabel Wilkerson at the Faith and Literature Festival at the University of North Carolina, Asheville. So something else, um, something that was disturbing to me, and I don't even feel like... I feel like it was just, again, so matter-of-fact. But So I, I lived in divided Europe, in, the, in Cold War Europe, and I, so I, I, have, I lived in a place where people were stopped from leaving the place that, you know, where, where the border was meant to keep people out, in rather than out, mm-hmm. which is so bizarre. <clears throat> um, and that actually was happening now too. But but I'll, what what I also found really disturbing about the dynamic is that on the one hand, African Americans were being lured by the North as cheap labor. It's it's kind of it's you know, and so that is a reverse of the dynamic we're seeing, for example, in Europe now. Um, they were they were desired as cheap labor, and the South, for the same reasons, was. Keeping people in—that's uh, shocking to me. I don't know. I, I shouldn't be shocked, but just. Well, I, I think that um, a, a lot of this actually is not—it's—it's it's out there, but it's not commonly known. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I hear most often when I go out talking about this book, or people write to me constantly, and it's the same phrase over and over again. I had no idea. I mm-hmm. hear it over and over again from people who actually were alive at the time that some of these things were going on. Um, part of it, as I, uh, you know, as we were discussing before, is that a lot of the people just didn't talk about it. If you think about it on both sides of this caste system or this divide, there was not much incentive for anyone to talk about it. I mean, on the one side, you know, people don't want to really think about the awful things going on uh, around them. And then those who were suffering from it and, uh, and had escaped, they didn't want to burden their children with it. It was like yeah. post-traumatic stress. Well, they right. Didn't want this to is a trauma, it. right? These were people who were deeply, profoundly traumatized. And it passes on through the generations, mm-hmm. which is how it reverberates to our current day. Uh, unaddressed um, tr- stress and uh, trauma can uh, evidence itself in so many different ways. And so that's one of the reasons why people might not have known about these things. I mean, I myself, I mean, of course, too, because I didn't know. I was doing the research. and. Um, there were there were so many things that I was discovering. I was overwhelmed with the things that I was discovering. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I had no idea. I mean, how could any of us have known? But to get to your point, though, um, the the elaborate um, mechanisms to maintain the this divide 
Yeah. Um, almost, it borders almost on if you, if it weren't so deadly and and sad, it would be almost absurd because the what happened with the trains when they reached uh, border space and the trains had to they were going into free territory of Illinois if they're crossing over, um, you know, from the neighboring state from Kentucky depending upon what part of Illinois they're in, and they have to actually uncouple. The uh, the trains because the new place doesn't have the se- uh, segregation, but the old place had the segregation, so the segregated trains had to be pushed to the side. And really, this is a version of crossing between East Germany and yes. West Germany uh, when the Iron Curtain divided Europe. I make reference to that that yeah. image um, because they were crossing over into. Uh, in, into another land with mm-hmm. different laws, different uh, different expectations, and the border areas were uh, a, a, a place of, of great uncertainty. Um, I, I found myself um, saddened for them that when they were in places where they putatively were free, they would be when they crossed over, they were afraid to move into the integrated cars. They stayed where they were. If they were going from the south, going to the north, mm-hmm. and they crossed over the border into mm-hmm. Illinois or into Ohio, mm-hmm. they were they were afraid to move. They they didn't want to draw attention to themselves. It had been so ingrained in them the restrictions that they wouldn't even take the chance. Mm-hmm. And so it takes time to overcome the unconscious absorption of the caste system into which they had been raised and born. And it's not like they were being welcomed with open arms when they landed in northern cities. No. Many of them, uh, sadly, I mean, the great tragedy is that they were brought in as strike breakers um, by the union, by Mm -hmm. by the companies who were Mm -hmm. trying to break the unions. Mm -hmm. And so that meant that, you know, one of the great tragedies of the 20th century is that there were all these people arriving in these big cities of the north, industrial cities, Detroit, Chicago, um, Cleveland, Buffalo, all of these places. And there were people coming in from parts of Europe, Eastern and Southern Europe, for example. Um, and there were people coming from the South, African Americans, all wanting the same thing. They were the same people from small towns and the countryside. Mm-hmm. They'd left all that they knew, um, you know, kinfolk, mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers, and taken their chances, great leap of faith into the unknown, into these harsh and anonymous cities. And there they are, pitted one against the other. Mm-hmm. One group is permitted to join the union and to work in these jobs. They were actually, there were stratifications of the kind of jobs that people could do in the North. African Americans arrive um, with, with uh, you know, in some ways, uh, with saddled with a visible, uh, the visible stamp of, of caste. And, and there were places in Milwaukee, for example, that said, um, you know, that no African American, many places actually said African Americans would not be hired, but they could actually, they would stop them as they were walking walking up to the factory gate because it was visible that they were African-American. Right. And so, as it turned out, many of the recruiters representing, you might say, the North, they wanted the labor of African-Americans from the South, but mm-hmm. didn't want the people. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Um, and again, to think of... Uh, to think of this in terms of other refugee and uh, crises and immigration, you know, immigrants that we think of. I mean, the story of, so we don't, you know, again, we don't think of these as people who are crossing borders of language and citizenship, mm-hmm. but the story of Jesse Owens, right? <laughs> that that's not the name he was born with. Right. 
right? Tell, tell I that. would say language could be an issue. Right. <laughs> I mean, because an what was his name? His name was James Cleveland Owens. He was from, his family was from Alabama. Uh-huh. They were in Alabama. A large family. They were f- frightened for him because he was small-boned and frail and the youngest of the, of the family. And they were worried for what was going to happen to him because sharecropping is a, is a tough, tough, back-breaking, you know, sun-up to sun-down job work. And they were not being paid for, they were working for the right to live on the land that they were farming. So there was not really money coming in and they were worried for him. Where they happened to be was they were in a part of Alabama where everyone around them was whispering, African Americans were whispering about this place in the north called Cleveland. And uh, this, the, his parents chose to name him Cleveland, James Cleveland Owens. Um, the family was divided as to whether they should go, but the, the mother prevailed. And um, they uh, went, uh, they, once they arrived in the north and he went to his first class, the teacher asks him his name, and he says J.C., which is what they called him, short for James right. Cleveland. And the teacher, speaking differently in the North than they spoke in the South, which is what I, why I would say that maybe language actually was a barrier, uh, didn't understand him and just called him, started calling him Jesse. He went home and told his parents what had happened in school that day. They started calling him Jesse, too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And that's what we have. It's as if, as if the, their attitude was, that must be what they do when you go north. They rename your children. <laughs> um, so I want to read a little bit of um, another moment for me. And this brings us to our moment. Another moment in the book that was just heartbreaking. It was very early on. And it's when you first met Ida May in 1996 in Chicago. Uh, From the open door in the vestibule, I see her. She is sitting in a a cotton house dress on a baby blue, plastic-covered easy chair by the window. She is looking through a parting of the curtains at the street circus below. There they are, all scuffling beneath her. Urban drug dealers falling down sweatpants pulling at their feet, now bent over the driver's side window of a late model sedan from the suburbs. Fourth graders doing lookout for men who could be their fathers. Young girls with their stomachs swelling already. Middle-aged men living out of their Pontiacs. Gangsters who might not make it to the weekend. She lives on the second floor of a three-flat on the south side of Chicago. Now, I want to say before I say this, she is a remarkable, <laughs> joyful person. But this is a heartbreaking moment. It is. To know that this is, this is it what to. it became for her in Chicago, the promised yeah. land. It's a reflection of the structures that they confronted upon arrival. It's all the things that, you know, that sociology and political science and the history come together and show us that they arrived invited but not welcome. They arrived um, making the least for the hardest work. They arrived uh, consigned to neighborhoods 
that in, in which that, that were declining, that had been declining from the moment they arrived, meaning I'm talking about the beginning of the migration, the subdivision, the subdivided um, uh, cold water flats that they were living in, uh, the originating part of, of where these people were living upon arrival. And they were making the least amount of money, paying the highest rent because there was no competition. There, this was not an open market. They were not, African Americans were not permitted in any of these cities to live anywhere that they wanted or anywhere that their money would take them. Mm. Making the least, paying the most for their, um, for wherever they were living, these decrepit places. They were, um, had little in the way of upward mobility. Many of them were attacked because they were brought in as strike breakers. I mean, just everything going against them that mm -hmm. you could imagine. And then what set in place the reaction to the arrival of these people were then efforts to further isolate them and restrict them to these hemmed in, roped off places in every city that they went to. All of us who've been to any city in the North know exactly where the arriving, the arriving district or arriving neighborhood of people of the Great Migration would be because that's where it's the oldest broken down neighborhood in all of these cities, usually um, not well positioned by the railroad tracks or near the factories. So, you know, it's, al it's almost like the <laughs> refugee camps of now. Because you go to it refugee is. camps around the world now and you hear the word refugee camp and you think it's tense. But in fact, where you have refugee camps where generations of people have been living, it looks like. That's exactly it. I mean, that's, that's such an incredible uh, observation that you're making. That is that these were refugee camps created in our American cities. Mm -hmm. And as they sought to expand or if they managed to save whatever they could from these jobs, and a lot of them, you know, this new research about the Great Migration is coming out showing that they actually worked multiple jobs. So that actually the people who arrived, there's a lot of fascinating sociology that came out of this, that they were because they had known nothing but work, that is all that they had known in the South. I mean, that was, and they were not being paid for their hard work. The opportunity to get paid for your hard work meant that they were more likely to work even harder, mm -hmm. as immigrants often do. Mm -hmm. So they were working multiple jobs often, and that meant that they actually were making more money, not a lot in general terms, but they were making more money than the African Americans who had preceded them, who had already, who had grown inured to, and who had grown weary of the fight. So they had come in fresh blood wanting right, to make this work. Right, with that immigrant spirit. Yes, right. and so they actually were making more money, but it wasn't going as far because there were so many coming in, flooding these neighborhoods that were actually you know, being hemmed in and, uh, and uh, pressed against because they were not able to spread out, that they, they were paying more because it was, a, it, was a, it was a seller's market. And that was the world that they had entered. They were living in the vice districts. I mean, all of the things that make for every possible disadvantage that you can have going in, that's what they were facing. Mm -hmm. And so what the cities, what all these cities ended up doing was then they created further barriers. They created restrictive covenants, which meant that for, 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 white, for white residents or white homeowners, even if they wanted to sell to African Americans, they were restricted as to being able to sell because there was this covenant on the deed that said it could not be sold to African Americans. Other groups might have been included as well, but mm. African Americans would surely have been on there. Mm. Uh, there were there were then also red, there was redlining that meant that African Americans, as they if they sought to buy a home, 
the existence of African Americans in the neighborhood meant that the place was, that that neighborhood was disqualified from uh, FHA loans for the people who were seeking to go. That meant your existence, by definition, prohibited you from getting a standard mortgage. And so they would then get mortgages on the second market mm. and secondary market, which meant that they were paying exorbitant rates. This is sounding very much like you know, 2006 and 2007 for us now. Yeah. And so this is all setting in motion all of these forces that were making it even more difficult for people to succeed in these big places, the, re the receiving stations, the refuge, the cities of refuge for the people of the Great Migration. So between the time you first published the book in 2010 and today, you know, these have been years in which um, we have been forced to confront the fact that um, with all the laws that were passed and with the progress that was made, there's so much, so much unfinished business. And in fact, that all the progress hadn't, wasn't there. Um, and I wonder how you, you watch what has risen to the surface. Uh, I mean, I think that the good news is that we see this. It's not unseeable anymore. It's a moment of reckoning. Um, and I wonder how um, having traced this history, seeing this, you know, being able to see the origins of some of these dynamics that we're facing now. How, again, again how, you, how you have understood what is happening now in ways that perhaps you wouldn't have if you hadn't done this research and delved into this, this story. Well, it's, it's kind of reminded me that, you know, our country is like a really old house. I love old houses. I've always lived in old houses. But old houses need a lot of work, and the work is never done. And just when you think you've finished one renovation, it's time to do something else. <laughs> you know, something else has gone wrong. Yeah. And that's what our country is like. And I feel as if when you have an old house and there's been, um, you know, some, um, some you know, uh, crisis, a storm of some kind, and you have to check your house and you have to go into that basement, and you may not want to go into that basement. But if you, you, you really don't go into that basement, it's at your own peril. And I think that whatever you are ignoring is not going to go away. Whatever you're ignoring is only going to get worse. Whatever you're ignoring will be there to be reckoned with until you reckon with it. And I think that that's what we're called upon to, to do where we are right now. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also reminded there's a tremendous amount of new and exciting research on the, you know, sort of the, the this is foundational sort of in the DNA of, of our country, which is what this book is about too. It's about the caste system, the artificial hierarchy that was put in place before our great, great, great grandparents uh, you know, we're alive. It's something that we've inherited. It's not something that we wanted. If you're on the, the beneficiary end of it, you didn't ask to be on the beneficiary end of it. Certainly if you're on the, the targeting at, targeted end of it, you certainly didn't ask to be on that, but this is where we are. And the new and exciting research is showing that, you know, these, if, these are unconscious biases that yeah. exist 
in the DNA of our country. We are, have all been exposed to it. It's really as if, you know, it's something that, you know, to be exposed to the culture means to be exposed to these unconscious biases. And I, I think that it's calling upon us to, to reckon with this finally. Um, the fact that the, the disturbing thing about where we happen to be right now is that, yes, these things are unseeable, but that does not mean that, that action's being taken. I mean, we see that mm -hmm. so many of these mm -hmm. cases are really not, they're not being prosecuted. I mean, some of these yeah. cases are, and that actually, I don't know if it's a better thing or not. I mean, now that we have the evidence for this, this incontrovertible, I mean, how can you not see this? Mm -hmm. And each case that does not get acted upon, I think, um, deepens our own um, collective complicity in this unjust injustice. Mm -hmm. I also think that you know we have to recognize how we are all being victimized too by these images of of death. You know, of African Americans. You know, these are these are deaths that we're actually seeing human beings, American right, citizens, right. unarmed citizens, who are dying before our very eyes. And what is the effect that that's having on all of us collectively? Mm -hmm. Is that inuring us? Is that numbing us to the um, to black death? Is it numbing us and inuring us to the you know maybe helping us to to, to feel that actually it's not this is acceptable? Is it making it acceptable on some level? Because you see something enough times, it normalizes it. And I would like to think that this would never be viewed as normal. Yeah, I mean, here's a striking, terrible statistic that you that you note, that there was a lynching every four days in the early decades of the 20th century, and it's been estimated that an African American is now killed by police every two to three days. I also think, um, I also find great hope in the science of implicit bias. Yes. And it's also just us understanding our brains. Yes. And, yeah. and if you want to see it in the largest possible perspective, it's this possibility we have in the 21st century of wholeness, yes. of really understanding ourselves and our wholeness. I think, I've never thought of it as in terms of people getting inured to black death, but I do think something that happens is that these images are, people feel so paralyzed by them. All right, so it's so terrible, it's so inexplicable, and you have no idea how you could make a difference. I, I would agree with you. I actually find this new research, which is why I described it as exciting, yeah. and, um, it, it parallel work to the idea, the use of the term caste system, uh, which is a term that anthropologists use in the 20s and the 30s when they were talking about the South and um, in particular. But I think it, it definitely it expands also to the rest of the country because it is still the South is 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 a, a, you know it's part of the United States. So this is our collective inheritance. Um, I think that what's freeing about it is liberating because it takes it away from the personal. This is not personal. Yeah. Right. It doesn't mean that there aren't things that each and every one of us can do in our personal lives to, in how we comport ourselves and how we reach out to others and how we treat those around us and other actions that we might choose to take politically or otherwise. But it, but it also means that it's, it, it, it frees us from the twin barriers to understanding guilt and shame. Yeah, right, right. 
because it's not personal. Mm -hmm. And a caste system is a structure that we have inherited, that we did not create, that we don't, there's no point in pointing fingers about it. But it's something that we, recognizing it is the first step toward, toward dismantling it. Mm -hmm. And recognizing unconscious bias is the first step to, um, to finding ways to inoculate ourselves from mm -hmm. it and to recognize that it's not personal. It's, yeah. It has nothing to do with being a good person or a bad person. It means that you've been, we have all been exposed to the same messaging. Mm -hmm. And as much as, uh, you know, the dynamics here and abroad, there's a lot to be, there's a lot that is, um, is a fearful backlash, uh, kind of fearful and frightening uh, resistance to this knowledge. Uh, that also comes from those primitive parts of our brain. Absolutely. Um, but I, uh, you know, I feel like the success of this book, and books like Michelle Alexander's *The New Jim Crow* and *Ta Nehisi Coates*. Too. Hmm? She uses the term "cast" too. Yeah. It came out the same year. We didn't. Neither of us knew about the, right, use of the term. Right. Right. It was and, the term to use. Our independent uh -huh. research, separate, um, came to the conclusion that that was the appropriate and precise term to describe the, the way that we live, mm -hmm. this, the world in which we live. And the way people are engaging with this book, this telling of a truth, and, and her work, and Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, um, I, I feel, you know, I, I, I want to take that seriously because there, there is, um, it does suggest an opening to knowing this and to grappling with this. And I mean, you said to me, would you show everybody your book? Oh, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> you said, a lot of miles on it. <laughs> it looks like a Bible. Yeah, it does. Um, and, and you said to me now that really all you do, I mean, you, you're a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, but all you do now is travel around uh, accepting invitations to talk about this in rooms like this, which makes me feel really hopeful. I mean, and it's kind of a narrative of another kind of energy that's present in this moment that we don't, we don't tell ourselves that story of right now. But I don't know. Am I reading that into it? Is it what's, what's your, what has been your experience of being out there with this material? Uh, well, you know, it's it's actually been all over the world, and I I um I, I think that uh, the story the, the universal human story of these people the you know the the fact that people can identify with these people um, allows entree to some really difficult aspects of our history. So it can be read on multiple frequencies. And I think that the frequency at which people approach it works for them at that time. And then people will tell me they, they read it again and then they see it in another way and that's mm -hmm. part of it. But the response has been um, just, as you said, it's been so encouraging. I actually was in, uh, in Singapore 
uh, talking about this book, and I was speaking to a group of high school students who can be sometimes challenging, and um, I, I usually like to give them examples of people who uh, they can recognize mm -hmm. who were part of the Great Migration. And, but I didn't know how well that would play there. And um, so I was, uh, <laughs> I was giving these clues, and I said, well, this is an individual who was, uh, who was a guitarist, and his, his, uh, his, his mother was from Virginia, and they, she migrated out to Seattle, and the hand shot up in the back. The student just shot up. Jimi Hendrix. And I was just thinking, my goodness, it has just, it has really, <laughs> truly migrated. I mean, the, the culture has yeah. migrated, and the appreciation for how this has unfolded and the mm -hmm. impact that it's had. Mm -hmm has resonance around mm -hmm. the world. And Michelle that. Obama is also another good, just, you know, this person in the center of our culture right Ab now. Who absolutely. Is just a great story of the a product of this. Product, I mean, there's so many people, Toni mm -hmm. Morrison, August Wilson, Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington. Yeah. I mean, there's so, so many people yeah. uh, that you could, you could that, that's one way of, of recognizing the mm -hmm. impact that it had. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, what this migration was, and I think people are, are uh, identifying it, is that it was, it was really the, it was an uncorking, it was, it's an unleashing of this pent up creativity and, and genius in many cases mm -hmm. uh, of people miscast mm -hmm. in this caste system. You know, you think about those, you know, those cotton fields and those rice plantations and those tobacco fields and, and on all of those, you know, cotton fields and tobacco plantations and rice plantations were opera singers and jazz musicians yeah. Yeah. and poets and, um, and professors, defense attorneys, doctors. I mean, that's a, this is the manifestation of the desire to be free and what was lost to the country. Because for centuries, you know, for 246 years of enslavement, and I, I have to remind people, 12 generations of enslavement. 12 generations of enslavement. You know, how many greats do you add to grandparent yeah. to get that back to 1619 until 1863? Yeah. And that gives you a sense of how long all of these people were miscast into an artificial hierarchy as to what they were permitted to do, uh, you know, or risk death if they did not do that. Mm -hmm. And you know, so that, that I think that people are more open to hearing that now. And one, one um, you know, fact about this whole idea of where we are right now, you know, just sort of cosmically, I think, in terms of this, you know, where we are as a country is that, when it comes to this history, is that enslavement and then Jim Crow lasted for so long that enslavement alone um, we have not, we, no, 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 let me put it this way, no adult alive today will live to see a time when enslavement, the time of enslavement was equal to the time of freedom. Hmm. No, because it lasted for 246 years. It's been about 150 or so years since, um, you know, since enslavement ended, uh, since the 13th Amendment. And you know we're looking at another 95 years from that time, right. 
And so that shows you that this history is long and the history is deep. Mm -hmm. You know, when you go to other countries, you go in other parts of the world, in Europe or India, other places, yeah. and the history goes so far mm -hmm. back. And, yeah. you know, the people in Portugal can still remember that, you know, well, you know, there was that, you know, there was that catastrophe in, you know, the 15th century. We still <laughs> haven't gotten over that yet. You're right. Well, think about, right. You know, right. Think about, you know, think yeah. about how this is really not that long ago yeah. in a sense of generations, in the sense of, of even um, sort of, I would view it almost cellular memory in the bones mm -hmm. of a people. And I feel as if this is not something that should be dismissed. I was actually, I actually was also uh, uh, encouraged by the fact that after the, um, the Charleston Mother Emanuel um, shootings, um, the, the Commonwealth of Virginia rose to the occasion, and the Richmond Times-Dispatch um, said, um, you know, the, the editorial board said that there should be a Truth and Reconciliation Commission and that it should come from, it should come from Virginia, which was the capital of the mm -hmm. Confederacy. Mm -hmm. And it, the, the, the solutions lie in the South, I believe. I really believe that the solutions lie in the South. Mm. Oh, um, I, I wanted to read um, something that uh, this was a, a blog, um, uh, a minister in rural New England. Have you, do, do you know this? I don't. I mean. Okay. It was, it's, called, it's called Faith in the Ordinary. And so uh, I think it's a man, but it could be a female minister. In New Hampshire, the third whitest state in the U.S., with a white population of 96%, and a state that borders... Numbers one and two, Maine at 96.9%, Vermont at 96.7%. We have to work harder to make these connections. Um, if you haven't read it, try and find a book called The Warmth of Other Suns by <laughs> Isabel Wilkerson. It is, hands down, the best work of nonfiction I have ever read. It tells the story of how the Jim Crow laws and their accompanying attitudes shaped the lives of three black Americans who came north during the 20th century. When I was reading it, I kept saying over and over again, just like, I had no idea, I had no idea. <laughs> and then he says, we may be clueless and awkward around the subject of race, but we know what the gospel demands, that we keep working at being better neighbors. <laughs> I think about that so much these days about this work of knowing our neighbors who are strangers, mm -hmm. and that that, in fact, is the, is the immediate work that, in fact, is not, it's not evident how we do it because we're so segregated in so many ways in our communities. Um, but it's possible. And I, I wonder, people must ask you this question. I mean, I, I wonder how... If there's advice you give or thoughts you, that's terrible, or thoughts you have about, about this work of coming to know our neighbors who are strangers, of being neighbors, just that. Well, I think I want to start to answer the question with um, a fundamental um, um, sad um, recognition with these police shootings um, and then get to the answer. Mm -hmm. And that is that there's so many things disturbing about them and the videos are showing them. But I think that you know people can disagree on what the officer was thinking, what the, what the circumstances of his arrival, what he saw, what he thought, and these are split-second decisions. Um, there are a lot of things going on. 
And often they, there's, a, there's a, a, a refrain that comes across that says, I feared for my life, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know, I feared for my life. But I think the human question in, that is disturbing and hard to reckon with is what is happening in these cases after the person is down? And I think that you know, all of us have to think about what is it you know, what is it that we're hearing and what is it that we're seeing? Why is it that um, basic human response to a person in distress? Mm -hmm. Why is it that first aid cannot be ministered to people once they are bleeding on the ground? Mm. Where is the threat once they are already near death? Why can't they, even if they're not um, equipped, and I would assume that an officer of the peace would be equipped, but I'm, I'm not an expert in this. But even the basic human response to take the hand of someone whose life is slipping away from them mm -hmm. and to comfort them, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that is the essential missing piece, which is empathy. Empathy and recognition in a, the common humanity of another person. Mm -hmm. And as I said, we can disagree on this, the circumstances and the details and the so-called facts of the, of the situation. But after the person is down, where is the humanity? And I think it calls upon all of us to recognize, I think, the need for radical empathy. And I think that you know, empathy is a word that, that gets used a lot. Yeah. But I would challenge people to think about what does that really mean. Empathy is not pity. Um, or sympathy in which you are looking, you know, a pity of you, you're looking down on someone and feeling sorry for them. Sympathy, you may be looking across at someone and feeling bad for them. Yeah. Empathy getting, means getting inside of them and understanding their reality and looking at their situation and saying, not what would I do if I were in their position, but what are they doing? Why are they doing what they're doing? from the perspective of what they have endured. Mm -hmm. And that is an additional step. There are multiple steps that a person has to take to really be open to that. You know, and all, thank you. <laughs> in, in, in all of uh, these discussions about what's going on now, um, we're so very divided and we're focused, there's such a focus on other and other can mean all kinds of things. And so people will often say, why is it that those people do that thing? Yeah. Why is it that those people are doing this over here? Mm -hmm. And in my view, there's only one answer to that question. The only answer to that question is, why do human beings do what they do when they are in that situation? It's not the people, those people. It's mm -hmm. what do human beings do. Mm -hmm. And it calls for radical empathy in order to put ourselves inside the experiences mm -hmm. of another and to allow ourselves the pain, allow ourselves the heartbreak, allow ourselves the sense of hopelessness, whatever right. it may be that they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And it's a difficult thing to do, but it's necessary, I think, you know, I think one of the reasons that we're in the situation that we're in in our country is because, you know, the laws have laws have been changed. Um, you know, lots of laws were passed actually in the 1860s, right? <laughs> and then right. they had to be, you know, revisited in mm -hmm. the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Uh, partly, I think it's an indication that the laws are necessary, but they're not sufficient. 
and that we recognize, we recognize that the laws can be changed if the hearts have not changed. Mm -hmm. And so I view myself as on kind of a mission, um, you know, to, to, to change, you know, the, the country or the world one heart at a time. And it's a tough, it's a tough, you know, it's a tough thing to do. I mean, I, I feel as if the heart is the last frontier. And because we have tried so many other things. Yeah. And the laws that we've passed that we thought were written in granite, we see can be erased and are in peril yeah. if, if, as a collective, we do not recognize why. Mm -hmm. I also believe that in the time of working on this book, I, uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's multidisciplinary. There's sociology, there's psychology, there's economics. All of these things yeah. are in there. But I think the foundation of all of those of all of those disciplines comes down to the history. When you go to the doctor, before you can even see the doctor, mm -hmm. the very first thing they do is they give you all of these pages to fill out. And they, before the doctor will even see you, he wants to know your history. He doesn't want to know just your history. Mm -hmm. He wants to know your mother's history. Right. He wants to know your <clears throat> father's history. Right. They may go back to your grandmother and your grandfather yeah. on both sides. And that's before he will even see you. Mm -hmm. You cannot diagnose a problem until, until you know the history of the problem that you're trying to resolve. Mm. And I think that that is why the history is so necessary to getting us through this, because we keep repeating the history over and over again. Right. Because we haven't, we, first of all, people don't know it, and they don't know it in order to address it, and they feel it's going to be too painful. I think, you know, you were asking about this book and how it's moved around in the world. I think this book is proof, or the response to it is proof, that it's not as hard as it has to, as you might fear yes. it will be. That actually you can find it um, not just enlightening, but healing. But I think part of the reason you made it not as hard, if you, you opened up the fact that it's not as hard as it has to be, is that you humanize the history, right? And, that, and I think that this minister is on to something when they say we need to see our neighbors. Because actually we can't, I mean, there's so much, you said, just said so much there. But there's, science is actually helping us. And, I mean, mm -hmm. and I think changing your heart is a synonym for overcoming un unconscious bias, right? I mean, there's things, there are these things that it's becoming more conscious about what's going on inside us. And then working with that. Um, um, I think I just lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> but... You know, the we oh, another thing we're learning is that empathy is and this is a problem with journalism, frankly. Empathy is not triggered by a statistic. No. It's triggered by you know, it's not triggered and we should talk about this before we finish, mm -hmm. by now millions of people moving across Europe. Yeah, absolutely. In search of survival and freedom and just the ability to create a life for their children. We cannot take we can't we cannot take that in, but we can take in every once in a while the for, the face of one child, and that enables us to take in the enormity of the tragedy. I mean, I feel like everything you just said also uh, explains how, and this is something where I feel like if we could frame it this way, we could reckon with this better. How this is not 
this moment we're in is not just a social crisis and not just a political crisis. It's a spiritual, it's a crisis. spiritual crisis. And as much as we have to deal with it at those other levels, we have to deal with it at this level in terms of who we are. Because really that's all that's left. I mean, we have dealt with, the right. economy gets dealt with, the laws get dealt with. I yeah. mean, these are things that are, they're front and center, and I think um, that as a species, we know, to do, we know how to do that. Yeah. It's the spiritual aspect. The it's human condition the remains. Human, the human heart mm -hmm. and examining it mm. um, and allowing us, ourselves to feel the pain of others. You know, you don't want to feel your own pain. Why would you want to feel someone else's pain? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's, it's, I think it's an act of love and an act of faith to allow yourself to feel the pain of another. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also why we have to accompany each other, because we, it's not something that any of us welcomes to feel that pain. But we do know that if we take something like that on together, it can become bearable. So, I mean, that's why I feel like it's so important to have a group of us in this room together, thinking about these things together. Um, gosh, there's so much else we could talk about. I do want to, I do, I, I do want to say that as I was reading this book, and again, this is, this is not something you could have imagined in 2010, I was thinking about the refugee crisis in our midst now. And it's not so much an American crisis, but it is because we are all connected. And of course, we have refugees coming here. Um, you told me last night a story about a, a, a woman from oh, Greece. Do tell, yeah, do you want me to tell that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it stays with me, and actually her daughter is here in the, in oh, somewhere, okay. yeah. <laughs> which is amazing and reminded me of it. Um, when the, the, I should preface it by saying that um, another thing about my father. Um, my father had been a Tuskegee Airman, and after the war, they found it very difficult to find work. They could, as, as pilots, no one would hire them as pilots, even though they were considered among the best um, that had come out of the war. And so he had to remake himself yet again. And um, in, in doing that, he chose a totally different path. He became a civil engineer. So my father was literally a builder of bridges. And I carry that tradition and that part of him into the work that I do. And I, it's only in, you know, in the times this book has come out that I realized that. Mm -hmm. That's the reason why I constantly made these, this gesture throughout the book to immigrants and to recognizing that the, the people of the Great Migration, these African Americans who many people might have been told have nothing in common with, they're totally different, they're this or they're that, are actually, actually did the very same thing that the ancestors of so many people in this country did. But in any case, I, when the book first came out, I didn't know, uh, you know what was, how that was going to play out. And I, uh, there was, uh, I was giving a talk on Long Island um, on a really bitterly rainy day, uh, but it was, an extremely one, it was a wonderful turnout. And at the end of the talk, there was a very long signing line. The book had just been out, so there was a lot of excitement. And at the front of the signing line was this very um, diminutive woman, grandmotherly figure. Um, she had somehow elbowed her way to the front of the line. I don't know how she did it, but there she was. She, her arms were filled with books. Uh, that she had bought, she wanted me to sign them, um, but her eyes were, um, you know, were were red, and um, she was saying, uh, she was saying, I, you know, I just, I, I just cannot 
talk about this book. She said, I just, she said, I read the book, I just, I just, but I just cannot talk about this book. She said, um, if I start talking about the book, I'm going to cry for sure. She said, I can't talk about this book because this book is my story. She said, I'm an immigrant from Greece, and this is my story. Mm-hmm. And her name was Anna Stephanidis, and um, I don't think she would mind if I mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up going, uh, I just was so floored by that. We got our pictures taken. It was just such a lovely moment. Um, and she said she was going to have the rest of her family read it. I then had an, um, uh, an event in Brooklyn. She showed up at that. Again, we, you know, we, we, she was in tears. I was in tears. We have never really spoken because we're always just like, you know, uh, in tears. Uh, and, and, and that was... That was that bridge across the artificial barriers. You know, that's a that's a communing across uh, across um, the expanse. It's it it was it was this beautiful coming together that was so many things have come as a result of this book, and it's won mm-hmm. so many um, various uh, um, awards and, and notes. But um, but that was actually within my heart, yeah. my hope, yeah. that it could cross boundaries. And I've had many, many, many experiences similar to that. There was a man in Pittsburgh who um, wanted me to sign the book on a page. He said, this is the, the reason why I um, love this book, and it's because of a word you put on page, whatever the page was, 217 yeah. or whatever it was. And I said, well, what's on that page? And we went to the page, and he said it was Serbia because his grandfather had come from Serbia mm-hmm. to Chicago, and it had meant so much to him to read all the way through this book and then suddenly to see his, uh, the country of his ancestry there. And he wanted me to sign the, but he wanted me to sign the section, one of the uh, comments from, one of the um, epigraphs from Richard Wright in, in which Richard Wright is saying, you know, warily we arrive from the, you know, the station and we are holding our, our suitcases close to us because we are green, we are new, and we're frightened in this new place. He said, that was my grandfather arriving from Serbia, mm-hmm. and that's what I want you to sign. Mm-hmm. So I've had so, so many experiences. And I think as that. a reader, what this opens up in the imagination is... Um, the li- the lives of, of beauty and struggle and nobility um, that are in that those crowds that we see and you stop being able to see them as crowds as as abstractions refugees. Yeah. I want to read. Um, there's so much else we could talk about. I want to <laughs> read actually the last paragraph of the book, oh. and. Um, and just just reflect with you a little bit on that. Um, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Over the decades, perhaps the wrong questions have been asked about the Great Migration. Perhaps it is not a question of whether the migrants brought good or will, so the cities they fled to or were pushed or pulled to their destinations, but a question of how they summoned the courage to leave in the first place, or how they found the will to press beyond the forces against them and the faith in a country that had rejected them for so long. By their actions, they did not dream the American dream, 
they willed it into being by a definition of their own choosing, by a definition of their own choosing. They did not ask to be accepted, but declared themselves the Americans that perhaps few others recognized, but that they had always been deep within their hearts. And so you trace these stories of these individuals, uh, these particular stories of this universal drama. And I wonder, um, and you really, as you said, what did you say, you channel these people in your brain. Um, and heart. And heart. And so how, um, what, what, ha- what did you learn? What do you carry around with you about, about what it means to be human through these lives that you carry with you now? Well, I, I really have I've came to believe and to know I, uh, that we all have so much more in common than we've been led to believe, and that we've been sadly, tragically assigned roles as if we're in a play, and this is, this is what these people do, and this is what these people do, and this is what these people do. And uh, the tragedy is that regardless of which assignment you had been, um, you had been put into, that might not have been your strength at all. And I, I've, I, I just have gained in such, uh, the thing is, this has been out for six years. I spent 15 years on it, uh, researching and writing it. I have never grown weary of talking about it. Mm-hmm. Every time I talk about it, I gain new appreciation and gratitude and amazement at what they were able to do. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I hoped to do was to bring the invisible people into the light. They never were being written about. We just skipped from you know, civil war to civil rights in this entire part of our, mer- of our country's history. Um, and their lives, generations actually of people skipped over and not recognized. And I felt that it deserved its own place and recognition. Mm-hmm. I I believed that you know the you know sort of bringing the invisible people into the light would help all of us to understand and see ourselves better because we've been so affected by what they did. And what these people did, I mean, by sheer force of will, they were able to make the Emancipation Proclamation live up to its name in in their individual lives to the degree that they could. It means that they were able to do what you know what the you know the, what a president Abraham Lincoln was not fully able to do, and they were able to do what the powers that be North and South were not really fully able to do, and they it was about their agency and their making a decision for themselves, and declaring themselves to be citizens which they had always been but had never been really truly recognized. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to tell you that you know we were, I was talking about these people from other different backgrounds who feel such a connection to them, but to the people. A woman um, who's, she said, Ida Mae reminded her, was exactly like her Norwegian grandmother. I mean, so, who knew? But but one of the very unusual things that that has happened um, that seems appropriate for the conversation that we're having is that um, so many children or grandchildren, children primarily, of the Great Migration have come up to me and told me with a sense of healing and completion that this book was the last book that their parent read before they died. And you would think that it would be incredibly tragic and sad, but it's the exact opposite. It's that this was that they were great. They, the, the, the children were grateful that their parents had had the chance to read this before it was too late. Remember, these are people who didn't talk about their experiences. But it's also it's not. I mean, these three 
you, you show how people continue to create lives, full lives, even with these circumstances and through these circumstances. Mm-hmm. And you know you don't know how to react when someone says this is the last book mm-hmm. that you know mm-hmm. my mother or father read mm-hmm. before they died, mm-hmm. um, but they say it with such joy and gratitude, and they say that it allowed them to come to terms with all that they had endured, and to and to, to give their suffering some meaning, and to recognize that they had not been alone, but that they had been part of something bigger, some connection to you know, immigrants around the world, uh, other people who'd come up from the South as they had, and, and, and others who had uh, been able to uh, express their freedom and their individuality and in the mm-hmm. way they had chosen, that, they, that it was a peaceful and, in their view, um, fulfilling and healing way to have left this planet. Mm-hmm. And that means so much to me. I mean, these are always letters of, of thanks and gratitude and... There's something you said. Oh, you, you talked about how part of what drives you is an aspiration to find strength in the discovery of what is true. And I think what you're describing is, however hard the truth is, it, it does complete us. It isn't, it isn't path, a necessary path to... Well, obviously I'm not the first to say it, but it seems to f- set some people free. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a great, great last word. I, yeah, Isabel Wilkerson, thank you thank so you. much. And what a delight it's been to you. Thank you.